All right, Emmaus, if you would, take your Bible and open to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to continue our study through the, through the book of Galatians this morning. And we are also, I want you to know, as we go through this study of Galatians, is if it's of interest to you, we have some little Galatians scripture journals available for you to be able to take notes and work on those. Those are in the little coffee area off to the right. So as you exit out these doors, if you turn to the right, those are available for $2. If that's of interest to you and be something you would enjoy as you go through this study of Galatians, we want you to be able to, uh, to pick up one of those. Also, I want you to know, if you are a guest of ours, we didn't do a formal welcome earlier, but my name is Owen, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I want you to know that if you need to reach out to us, we have a way that you can do that through text message, uh, even this morning. It's a very simple system. Guys, if you would bring that slide back up, I know we're going out of order here, but I want to make sure we get that, get that up there. If you're a guest of ours, if we could pray for you, or if you just have questions about Emmaus, about what's going on here, if you just text the word welcome to 405-451-1400. So just text the word welcome to 451-1400. We will be able to get in touch with you. Um, it'll ask you a little information about your name and, and email address, but it's a really easy, simple way for you to reach out to us and, and us to be able to, to get back in touch with you. Now, as we get started this morning, on looking at Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to ask Carl Dean to, to come up here. Carl is going to, we're going to have a chance to pray over Carl uh, right now, but Carl is also in many ways going to provide our opening illustration. He's not going to dance or sing uh, that we know of, but he is going to tell his story because it's a good segue into looking at Scripture together this morning. And one of the reasons we bring Carl up as well at this time is God has opened doors for Carl to go and be the director of Mission Norman. Mission Norman is a ministry that reaches out to Cleveland and McLean counties, and Carl's gifting, spiritual gifting, his talents, God's work in his life has opened up a door for him to be the director, full-time director of Mission Norman. Uh, now that's bittersweet for Emmaus because Carl's been such a gift for us for senior adult ministry and evangelism. And I know many of you would get rid of me before you got rid of Carl. So I want you to know, we're not getting rid of Carl. Uh, we're going to continue to pray for him. We're going to continue to financially support him. His family will continue to be around here. But his full-time effort will be director at, at Mission Norman. So, Carl, anything about that ministry call you, you want to say or any follow-up no, on that? Or? Um, just as Owen said, um, God has opened the door, I would say, looking at uh, this position going forward. I had a, a lot of obstacles uh, that I had to overcome, and God removed every single one of them, opened the door wide open, and uh, I'm walking through. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's where I'll be serving. Now, Carl, what I want you to do, for those of you that don't know Carl's story, I want you to share your story, Carl, uh, story of coming to faith in Christ, and then how that led into a call to ministry, and... We know there's a 30-minute version of that or an hour version. So uh, give us the four or five-minute version of, of God's work in your life. And as you hear Carl's story, I hope his story prepares you for what we're going to see in Scripture together this morning. So Carl, give people your story. Take a step forward so the folks over here don't miss you. But. So I would say uh, my testimony is a lot like uh, everyone else's or 
maybe it's not like anybody else's at all. Um, I was, uh, I came from a broken home, um, never met my mother. My father raised me and my dad worked an awful lot. And uh, this, this gave me opportunity to spend a lot of time with my grandparents. Uh, my grandparents lived about a half a mile away from me and I would just make my way on up to their place whenever I got lonely, bored or whatever else. And uh, they were the uh, godly influence in my life. The only one really um, until I met my wife um, or should say until I began to date my wife in the eighth grade. And by the way, you don't date in the eighth grade. Everybody knows that. Right? <laughs> okay, so she was my girlfriend in the eighth grade. Uh, we got married shortly out of high school and uh, we were having a conversation one day and she said, well, we're married now. You gonna take me to church? Guys, just know that's coming. If you don't talk about it beforehand, there's things that are coming. Either way, so I said, yeah, we started going to church and uh, we were running late one day and I hate to be late. So we stopped at a church halfway in between where we were going and uh, we ended up spending the next 20 years of our life in that church. Um, so if you're visiting here with us today, you may be spending the next 20 years of your life here in this church <laughs> and I hope uh, that that's true. Uh, either way, as we faithfully attended this little church. Um, they had uh, a, a group of services, special services that they called revival. And uh, as I went to these services, we went Sunday night, we went Monday night, Tuesday night rolled around. And uh, I'll just say that at this point, God had been working in my life quite a bit. And I understood what salvation was, um, but I didn't understand exactly how it came about because I had decided when I was going to get saved and my wife told me, no, it doesn't work that way. Uh, no, but glad you're thinking about it, glad you're talking about it. So fast forward to the revival service. I'm sitting in a pew and I'm listening to this guy preach. I don't know his name still to this day. It's the only time in my life I'd ever seen him. And uh, as he began to preach and to speak, um, as I would think things, you know, as you wander in and out of the sermon, I began to think about things in my head, and he began to say these things as I thought about them. And uh, I quickly realized that, okay, God's, uh, God's speaking to me. But uh, just, just to make sure, I said, Lord, if this is you and you're speaking to me right now, I want him to say golf. And about that time, the guy had his back turned to me, and he managed to point right at me, and he said, I'm talking about you golfers, too. <laughs> okay. So, I realized the Lord was speaking to me at this point, and I even realized what he was speaking to me about. It was my time to come and receive Christ as Savior. So, when the invitation time came, I gave it the old white knuckles where I grabbed a hold of the pew and I didn't move. Uh, the last amen came, and uh, I split. I, I literally ran out the door. And at the time, we lived about from here to the parking lot away from the church. So I went home, and my wife, she came later, and she's like, what, what happened to you? Where'd you go? What's the deal? And I said, ah, something happened. Something happened. She's like, well, what do you mean something happened? And so I began to tell her the story, and she got all excited and said, well, you need to call the pastor. And I said, for what? She says, this is your time to get saved. And I said, yeah, okay, I guess you're right. So either way, I called him, and uh, it was one of them late-night phone calls. He comes to the house. He was there about the time I hung up. 
And he comes walking across the yard. I could see him smiling. It's pitch black dark outside. Uh, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, these are the late night phone calls that I live for. Normally when you get a call late at night, it's not good. Either way, he came in. He said, what's going on? And I told him what had happened. And uh, he just smiled and he said, well, are you ready? And I said, yes, sir. I'm ready to receive the Lord. So I, I knelt in my living room. And I prayed to receive Jesus at that point. Um, obviously something that I'll never forget. It was fairly dramatic. And I've come to, to find out in life that the, those dramatic testimonies, uh, they're dramatic for a reason. Because there's, there's things coming in life uh, where you're going to need to fall back on that sure moment, that sure time that God spoke to you. And you're going to need to rely on that. Um, short time goes by. And he gave me, he gave me a Bible. And the only other person that had given me a Bible up to that point in life was my wife. And uh, I thought it was something that was just supposed to sit beside your bed or on the shelf. And, um, you know, it was just there. Nobody told me that B-I-B-L-E stood for basic instructions before leaving earth, right? <laughs> like, y'all knew that already, though, I'm sure. So either way, um, I carried on with life kind of doing my own thing and uh, watched my brother-in-law. He would uh, come to the altar every service and he would he would always get up and say God's speaking to me I'm not sure where he's leading me or what he's saying to me but God's speaking to me and uh, I remember praying one day will you speak to him why don't you ever speak to me and if I didn't mention already I wasn't reading the Bible because that's God's primary primarily how he speaks to us but uh, to make a really long story short um, I was at work one day, and God struck me with a bolt of lightning. And you mean literal lightning, not literally. metaphorical lightning. Yeah, no, no, yeah. no, literally. Struck me with a bolt of lightning and told me to preach. And as I shared this story this morning, earlier in the early service, I made one mistake, and I told them that God wanted me to preach. No, he, he didn't say, I want you to preach. He told me to preach. He did not give me an option. He told me to preach. Um, as I pondered this and as time went on, I remember there came a point in my life, um, summertime, out in the yard, sitting on a mower, mowing, where I literally stopped. And I told God, I've pretty well messed things up up to this point, and I'm sorry. Um, but whatever I am, whatever I have left, it belongs to you. I'll go anywhere you tell me to go. I'll do anything you tell me to do, and I'll say anything you tell me to say. I want everybody to know that everybody receives two calls. You receive a call to Christ, and then you receive a call to service. It doesn't always come in the form that the Apostle Paul got it, or in the form that I got it, and just to tell you why it came that way for the two of us is because we're hard-headed and <laughs> really want to do things our own way. I don't have to be struck by a bolt of lightning to hear God speak now, thankfully. Uh, I began to read the Bible at that point, and it doesn't say this per se, but this is what I read on the pages. Christians share the message of Christ with the people around them. And I remember the first person that I tried this on. I was at work 
This young man was unloading mortar off of a truck into the garage, and I went in to talk to him about Jesus, and I shared Jesus with him, and he prayed to receive Christ in that garage. And I thought, boy, that was easy. <laughs> I'm going to tell everybody I see. Now, obviously, everybody that I tell doesn't accept, uh, but that's not my job. My job is to tell them about the message of Christ. So I just want to encourage you. Uh, remember, everybody gets two calls, one to Christ and then one to service. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Carl. We're going to talk about that from God's Word. Before we do, I want to pray over Carl as he gets ready for this, this new role at Mission Norman. Let's pray for Carl, and then we're going to look at these scriptures about what Carl talked about. Father, thank you for the gift uh, that Carl has been to, to our church family and will continue to be in, in the days ahead. God, thank you for your work in his life and his encouragement to us for evangelism and ministry, his love for you and his love for people. God, I pray for the work at Mission Norman that many people would come to faith in Jesus uh, because of the ministry that happens there and the way that Emmaus is able to be uh, a part of that through prayer and, and partnership. God, I pray for Brandy and the kids. God, thank you for how much they mean to us, and we pray for their family in the days ahead. And God, I pray for our church family over the next few minutes as we look at this story from Scripture that the supernatural power of the gospel God, would be made known to us in a fresh way this morning from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Carl. All right, friends, Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. Let's work our way through these verses as we think about the supernatural power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what verse 11 says, and we're going to read into the beginning of verse 12. Paul says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me. So this message of salvation that I preached when I came to you, this gospel that was preached by me, it is not man's gospel. It's not according to human means or human teaching or human authority. In fact, he says in verse 12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. From the very beginning, Paul is laying out this simple idea that when we are talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of salvation, this is not something that people made up. Now, funny enough, you're going to find a lot in these verses about Paul and Peter working together, sometimes working well together, sometimes in conflict. I want to show you a couple of verses that Peter wrote later in the New Testament that connect with this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We did not follow these stories. And then verse 21, look at it's so clear. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let me get my TV back in its... Uh, correct space here. Here's what I want you to hear from the very beginning. This gospel that we preach, this message of salvation from Jesus, you don't need to hear any hot take or opinion or commentary or editorial. What we need is the message of salvation from God, a supernatural gospel. Now what is that? Look at the end of verse 12. The end of verse 12 Paul says, instead of receiving this from man, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. A revelation from God about the risen Lord. What makes the difference in Paul's life? Human teaching? 
human authority? Nope. Is a supernatural message, a supernatural power. His encounter with the risen Lord. So, so that story obviously comes out of Acts chapter 9. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What made the difference in Paul's life? It was his encounter with the resurrected Jesus. What makes the difference in your life and my life? It's an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. You can have all of the human teaching you want, you can have all of the religious tradition you want, but apart from an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, there is no supernatural power of the gospel. And, and I almost even hesitate to sound, say that because it sounds so simple, but I just worry as believers that we can pass over that too quickly, that we begin to forget that what God has done in our lives is through the power of the resurrection. It is through an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And when that happens, he transforms our lives. And so what I want you to see from the following verses is that when we encounter a supernatural gospel, we encounter that God does something amazing in our lives, he begins to transform our life from the inside out. He changes, literally changes our story. Okay, verse 13. We're going to work through the end of the chapter for, for this particular point. Paul says here, You have heard of my former life. So before encountering Jesus, you have heard of my former life in Judaism. This Jewish traditions and customs and teachings that Paul was around. Two things about this, this former life. Number one, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. <laughs> Notice here that Paul is not seeking out the Christian way. And the only reason he's seeking out the Christian way is to destroy it, to, to persecute it. In the next verse, Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. So when Paul was nine years old, he was playing 14U Judaism. Like he played up several classes when it came to religion. He was a prodigy. He was the little kid that all the adults liked because he kept the church rules and he knew the traditions and he memorized all the scriptures. And he was that person. He had all the religious upbringing here. But, verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born Paul's way of saying, this is nothing I planned out. This is the work of God. And who called me by his grace when he was pleased to reveal his son to me. What made the difference for Paul? Jesus being revealed to him. His eyes being opened to who Jesus is and why that matters. When this happened, it happened in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And he says, I didn't go and immediately consult with anyone else. What did Carl say earlier? We have a call to salvation when Jesus is revealed and you realize, oh my goodness, on my own, I have no hope. My only hope is that Jesus defeated sin on the cross and he defeated death through the resurrection. That's my only hope. Why did that happen? So that I could go and tell others. A call to salvation and a call to ministry, a call to go and share this with others. Now what does this path look like for Paul? It says there in verse 17, when this happened, he didn't immediately go to seminary <laughs> and he didn't go talk to the denominational leaders. He said, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I went away into Arabia 
which is this area to the east and the southeast. There's different theories about exactly where he went, but he goes to the east and the southeast. He went into Arabia to preach, and then he returned again to Damascus. And then in verse 18, after three more years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, to visit Peter, and I remained with him for 15 days. Now, the reason this verse is important here in verse 18 is it keeps us from going too far down the path that Paul was just rogue and independent and did his own thing and never connected to the church. Notice here, Paul comes back and he spends his time with Peter. What do you think he did with Peter for 15 days? I'm guessing he talked a lot about Jesus. Because here is Paul who has encountered the resurrected Lord on the way to Damascus. And here's Peter who spent years around Jesus. And how badly do you think Paul wanted to hear those stories about Jesus? How badly Paul wanted to hear from Peter the teachings of Jesus. Paul's ministry is established because of a revelation from God. But he doesn't go rogue. He connects himself and says, I want to know about this Jesus so I can continue to spread this message. Verse 19, he says, don't get the wrong idea. When I was there, I wasn't just trying to hang out with people. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then verse 21, Paul goes back home. I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Paul's hometown, Tarsus, was located in Cilicia, so Paul goes back home. He goes back to Cilicia. But I was still unknown in person to the churches of God, or churches of Judea that are in Christ. And then look at verses 23 and 24, and these are beautiful verses here. These churches of Judea, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Emmaus, here it is in these two verses right here. The supernatural message and power of God that comes to us transforms our story, transforms our lives. And here's the incredible part of this. Whether you're Paul or Carl or Owen or you sitting right there, it's the same gospel message for every person. It is the same message of salvation and forgiveness and hope for every person. But guess what? It happens in different ways. If we stood up here and shared our stories of how you came to faith in Christ, man, those stories are going to be beautifully diverse. They're going to be different in so many different ways, but it is the same gospel message. And one of the clearest ways I know to describe this to you is just to talk about baptism for a second. The thing that I love about Christian baptism is because we all participate in baptism in generally— it's the same way. You go into the water. You commit yourself to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're showing your faith in the Lord. But everybody's story is different. So when we do baptisms at Emmaus, we have someone in that person's life, a family member or friend, read their story of coming to faith in Christ. Same baptism, same hope, unique stories. And let me just say this as well. This is kind of an aside. But we are, because of the virus and everything going on, we're just about to the point of starting to do baptisms again. And we have several people lined up to be baptized. If you've never been baptized as a follower of Jesus, and that's something you want to talk to, reach out to me. I would love to talk to you about that. 
where your hope is found and how your story is told of what God's done in your life. I'd love to share with you more about that. But as we think about our lives being transformed, as we think about salvation, this phrasing, used to, is now, is such a simple way to think about your story. My life used to look like this, but because of Jesus, now it looks like this. Sometimes we get confused about how we share our testimony, how we share what God's done in your life. My life used to look like this, now it looks like this. Here's a question for you. Could someone write the story of your life without talking about how Jesus changed your story? Would it be possible for someone to write the biography of your life and not mention your encounter with Jesus? When we understand what it is to be a follower of Jesus, when we understand what it is to experience his salvation, that is the thing that changes our life. That is the thing that defines our life. If your story, if your life could be explained without the power of Jesus, can I ask you to trust in him today? Can I call you to trust in him, to respond to him, to do what Carl says and say, God, apart from your power, I have no hope. My life has to be defined by the good news of Jesus. I want you to do that work in my life, God. And here's the thing. When God begins to change our lives individually, he also brings us together. And this is what happens in chapter two. Let's work our way into chapter two a little bit today. And we want to talk about these transformed relationships. So God transforms our life by the power of the gospel. Then, chapter two, after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and I set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So again, Paul's not going rogue. He's going up and making sure, hey, let's make sure we're all on the same page here about what we're talking about. Verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. To which Titus said, thank God that that did not have to happen to me. You know Titus had to be so thankful about this portion of the trip at, at this point. But Titus, even though he's a Gentile, even though he's among those who are uncircumcised, he goes up and he is received as one who is worthy of salvation before God. That the hope, the defining characteristic of someone is not Jew and Gentile, but who is that person in Christ? Verse four. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. I know that cuts off mid-sentence, but let me stop there just for a second and we'll, we'll finish it. Because verse 4 kind of helps make sense of what's happening in Galatians. Here's what's going on in verse 4. Paul is going to tell a story about what happened to him in Jerusalem because that story is very similar to what's happening in the Galatian churches. So when you read verse 4, when you read verse 4, Paul is giving an illustration. He's giving an example of something that happened to him when he went to Jerusalem because it's going to help the Galatians understand how to stay faithful to Jesus. Paul says that when they went there, in verse 4, there were false brothers, so people who seemed to be among the church but actually weren't, who were brought in as spies. What's going on there? It seems like there were people who judged it their role 
to catch people not following the traditions or the religious rules as opposed to living with this freedom in Christ? Have you ever known anybody who seemed to make it their job to spy on other people keeping the religious rules and the church traditions? Those people are generally unhappy. Those people are generally not particularly helpful and they're often very, very divisive. Um, I said maybe in the, in the early service, you know, I don't know that I've ever been in a church where we had spies in, in the church, but then you think about it, you're like, actually, you know what? A lot of churches do have people who, who count themselves as spies. The only time I know of preaching in a church when there were spies there is when I was in college at Oklahoma Baptist, they would send us out to these really small churches to practice preaching. God bless those little churches that, that received us, but I was at a church in northern Oklahoma and there were probably 15 people at this particular service. Imagine a little church, six pews deep. So there were six pews in the, in the facility. And there was this little kid who the whole time I was preaching, he ran behind the back pews and he would duck down behind the pew and raise up and shoot me with his finger. And then he would duck down and he would run to the other side behind the pew and then he would raise up 30 minutes. This little dude ran back and forth behind the back pew and, and spied on me and shot me with his finger throughout the service. But that's the only spy I've known of who was in a, in a service. But you get what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying we have freedom in Christ and there are people who have made it their job to come in and say, no, no, you're not doing it right. You haven't done enough. You need to do this to be made right with God. What does Paul do to that in verse 5? What does Paul do in verse 5? He says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, and then catch this language, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Man, Paul was a master of figuring out which hills to die on. There are many times in Scripture he'll just say, no, nah, it's not a big deal. We're not, not. This, though, Paul says, there's no way I was given into those sleazy spies because I knew that holding strong protected the truth of the gospel, that the truth of the gospel is based on the freedom and the hope we have in Jesus and nothing else. And there was no way Paul was giving in on that point. Verse 6, he says, here's, Paul starts to throw some shade in verse 6, you'll pick up on it really quickly. He said, from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Uh, it seems that the Galatians were impressed by impressive people. They wanted to be around people that were prestigious and really added something to their honor. Paul, he's just not impressed. He says the thing that brings us together is Jesus. It's not how impressive you are or how cool you are or who we can get together in the same room. All Paul is concerned about is are we centered around Jesus. Verse 7, and don't you love people, people like that who just aren't impressed by other people very much? It's such a good example here. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, so I'm going to go to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, this same God worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. This is Paul's way of saying, hey, guess what? Peter and I, we're not in competition here 
We're preaching the same gospel and we're going to different groups. The churches that are gathered in this area of the world in which we live, we're not in competition with those churches. We're not trying to be more impressive than them. We're not trying to see who can be more influential than the other church. We are just in this to preach, to preach the gospel to the people that God has placed in front of us. Verse nine, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, Paul just can't help but throw out that language about who seemed to be pillars. They seemed to be impressive, but I wasn't impressed. Who seemed to be pillars. When they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, many people reading this would think the right hand of fellowship means a handshake, but we live in 2020 and we know better. It was probably a fist bump or a, an elbow bump or that awkward like air high five they're doing in professional sports now or something like that. But in some way, the right hand of fellowship was a sign of agreement and reconciliation and partnership. It was a way of saying, hey, we are in this together. The good news of Jesus, the supernatural power of the gospel, it transforms your life and my life, but it also transforms our relationships. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we don't divide on the basis of ethnic categories. In fact, we're going to talk about this next week. This is the purpose for the verses next week, so we're going to kind of punt on that a little bit. Also, though, in Christ, when we relate to one another— we have freedom from spending our lives trying to impress one another. That when you gather with the church, there is a freedom in the church that is very hard to experience anywhere else. That when you gather in the name of Jesus, you don't have to spend your time wondering who is more impressive, who is more influential, who has more power, who is cooler than everybody else. When we gather in the name of Jesus, we come together as partners. We come together in fellowship. That in Christ, Christian fellowship is not passive. It's active. We're in this together. You guys know better than, than I do probably that the way to really get to know people is to serve with them. Like if you really want to get close to somebody, if you really want to get to know somebody, if you really want to feel connected to somebody, it's good to sit in a Bible study. I mean, there's a place for that and a time for that, and, and that's good. But you really want to feel connected to somebody, you serve with them. Churches that are unified are churches that are unified around a shared mission who say God has called us to this task and we will not let anything else get in the way of it. We are going to do that and we're going to do that together. Now the question is, what is that task? Well, look at verse 10. This is our final verse for this morning. Look at this. So transform life, transform relationships, transform the mission or purpose. Only, Paul says, as we go with this gospel, they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So what is Paul going to give his life to? He's going to give his life to preaching, to, to sharing the good news of Jesus, and to caring for the poor. As we say at Emmaus, he's going to give his life to proclaiming and displaying Jesus through what he says with his words and what he does with his actions. In church, we have this weird habit of, of dividing things into categories that Scripture never does. Uh, like, should we speak about the good news of Jesus, or should we do good to care for the poor? 
as if those are enemies, <laughs> like as if those are ever separated in, in the word of God where Paul says, I'm gonna give my life to preach the good news of Jesus, this freedom in Christ, and wherever the gospel is spread, the poor are gonna be cared for. We are going to do good to people in need. We're gonna keep those things tied together. And even behind this language of caring for the poor, I think there's one other small thing going on in the background. When you read Paul's letters and, and you read Acts chapter 15 about the Jerusalem council that came together, it wasn't just care for the poor, but it was also an emphasis on holy living, living in the right way, living in a way that honored the Lord. And so when Paul says, I'm gonna put my faith into action, he's gonna do it by caring for people in need and he's going to do it in a way that promotes holy living. So in, in the church, there are some churches that really promote holy living and there are other churches that really promote caring for the poor, again, Paul is saying, man, why would you ever separate those things? Like, why would those be defining features? People who are living holy lives should be those who are most driven to care for the poor, care for immigrants, care for widows, care for those who are pushed to the side. Let that define our lives. So what's going on here? The supernatural power of the gospel changes your life changes your relationship with people around you, and then changes the purpose for your life in the future. God changed my life, changed my relationships, and changed what I live for. Can you imagine a story in which a kid grows up in church, okay? This kid grows up in church, and they're trying to please their parents, they're trying to hold on to the, to the church traditions, but inwardly, they're just not buying it. And somewhere along the way, they turn from the Lord. Their heart grows cold to the things of God. They turn, they go their own way. They live for the things of the world. And somewhere along the way, a person's prayer and consistent life and sharing the good news of Jesus draws that kid back and they experience salvation. They experience the freedom that comes in Christ. Then imagine another piece of that. Imagine a kid who grows up in church and they come to faith in Jesus as a little kid and man, going through high school, they value Christian friendships and they do their best to care for people around them and even when it's hard, they live a faithful Christian life and they grow up older and they find out that their friends who wanted nothing to do with the Lord, all along they were actually drawn to their life, they just didn't want to admit it. And later in life, so many of those friends come to faith in Christ because of that kid's faithful testimony, their faithfulness to the Lord. Now here's the question for you. Which one of those stories shows the supernatural power of the gospel? It's both, right? It's both. One of the greatest things that God can do in the life of a church and the thing that I pray that he does at Emmaus is when God brings together recovering Pharisees and returning prodigals and puts them together, man, you see the gospel on display. People who have recovered from this really cold religious background and now their hearts are on fire from the Lord and people who ran far from the Lord and realized that was not the direction I wanted to go, that was not what they promised out there, and they've come back to the Lord, you put those groups of people together, and you see the gospel on display in some beautiful ways. 
When I think about 2020, so when I think about Emmaus and what's ahead of us in 2020 and we have some big decisions, we have some big opportunities, Lord knows what 2020 is gonna have for us, you know, in the the months to come. Here's the word that comes to mind when I think about 2020. It's the word anticipation. Anticipation. Because when I think about God's work in our life, and I think about God's work in our church, and I think about the power of the gospel, God, I anticipate how you are going to work by your power and for your glory to do things that go beyond anything we could ever imagine. God, transform my life, transform my relationships, and transform what we live for. Let's pray about that right now. God, I pray as we wrap up this morning, uh, the powerful psalms that we've been able to sing, the time of prayer, the time of hearing testimony of your work in our lives. God, just the simple message from the Bible. God, I pray that you would get a hold of our hearts. God, I pray for our kids that they would know how good Jesus is. God, that that temptation just to look good on the outside, to look religious on the outside, God, that you would strip that away, that we wouldn't be spying on one another, but we would be loving one another and pointing each other to Jesus. God, bring us together. Change our relationships. Help us just to get rid of that thought that we have to impress one another and teach us to love one another. And God, I pray that you would transform what we live for. God, that you would do great things among your people here at Emmaus. Not so people would look at us, but God, so that they would glorify you. God, would you work, and would you work in a way that only you get the glory for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 